Ava Hartling. Welcome back to the Brandy's Female Podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Anne Miner, an entrepreneur, author, professional mentor, and speaker. She's the founder and CEO of the Don Vegan Group, an organization that specializes in business retention. In this conversation, you'll hear about Anne's decades of experience leading organizations through change. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandiesfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. You could say Anne Miner has a unique ability to see possibilities. She's a serial entrepreneur, a skilled facilitator, a trusted CEO advisor, and a sought-after coach. She's led executive teams through change, small and large, and she excels at bringing clarity and vision, as well as a strategic framework for implementation. Anne helps people and companies realize their full potential through collaborative and continuous improvement, in part through her work with the Don Vegan Group. She's also an international speaker and author of several books on the topic of customer relationships and customer experience. In her commitment to supporting fellow women in business, she is also chair of the Toronto chapter of the International Women's Forum. Here is our conversation. And it's a pleasure having you on The Brandy's Female today. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me. Oh, it's my pleasure too, Eva. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I like to get to the origin story uh, of, of my guests when I start these conversations. So I'm curious to know, in your case, when you were growing up as a young woman, young girl, uh, what kind of career were you imagining for yourself? Well, first of all, sort of to go in the beginning, I am the eldest of six children. And so from a pretty early age, I had lots of responsibility. I was having a conversation this morning with someone who said, you were the supervisor. I said, oh, no, no, I was management. So, <laughs> so it started there. But if, if you ask me when I stood up in kindergarten and said, what did I want to be when I grow up? I said I want to be a teacher because that's mm. the generation I come from, a teacher, a nurse, not a doctor, <laughs> not an astronaut. Uh, so we came along with very few possibility models, meaning mm -hmm. few women we could look to and say, if she can do that, I can do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My dad uh, started his own business when I was about 12. And I worked in that business. I was the replacement receptionist while his girl Friday, that's what they called her, went off on March break with her children. I made backdrops because he had a television studio. He, oh, was, wow. he was the first Sony video recorder distributor in Canada. So he had a mm. TV studio and he did training, very, very leading edge stuff at the time. Mm -hmm. So my hand got to be in some of those demos because, of course, we were still using flip charts and a pointer. And I really thought I would go into business with my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, but his point of view was quite a bit different. He didn't believe in doing business with family or friends. So we are on our own. And it didn't take too long before it was evident that I wasn't going to be a very good employee I would be better I would be better if I was driving the ship <laughs> right 
Right. So that gives you the Coles notes of it. Uh, had my first business when I was in university. As, wow. mm-hmm. as a, well, I was an Avon lady. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, my first experience with database management, so I had a rural route. And that meant that uh, the distance between the houses was quite great. So while Avon mm-hmm. ladies typically went door to door, I drove my car and I took the names off the mailboxes and I put each one on a recipe card. And then I looked them up in the white pages and I phoned them, had a conversation (laughs) about, you know, their demographics, you know, what was their household composition and what was their interest in Avon, if any. And the rural population was starved for for things that were different. And Mm -hmm. so I was very, very fortunate. I had a veterinarian who bought Avon products for all of her, all of her clients. And so my sales back in 1975, maybe, were $500 a month. And Mm. so actually that's what I was earning was $500 a month. Mm -hmm. So sales were higher. Sales were higher. Unheard of, actually. They sent somebody from Montreal to see what the heck I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> You'd created your own CRM management uh, before it even existed. I mm-hmm. had, I had, and I, you know, I recorded everything about their family, all of their purchases, and I phoned them r- routinely, and I dropped the catalogs off in their mailbox, and I put little stickies in to indicate things I thought they would be interested in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can see that I was already, you know, working in the marketing and sales arena pretty early on, pretty early on. Yeah. So where did that lead you? I mean, you had, you were earlier, you were thinking you'd be a teacher and then you had this business experience in university. What were you studying in university at that time? Consumer behavior. Ah, it all makes sense. Yeah, I started off in the pure sciences, and then I moved to uh, applied science, which is where the consumer studies fit in, because we had textiles, food, and um, so marketing and sales fell under that umbrella as well in terms of understanding the consumer. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to know why why do people buy things? Mm-hmm. And so I went to uni- the University of Guelph, for one year full on. And during that time, I did continue on with the consumer studies, but I wasn't totally sure that that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I took a year off and I worked for AC Nielsen, the Nielsen TV ratings people, who also have the consumer um, goods and services division. Mm -hmm. And I was in that division, not the TV sales division. Mm -hmm. And We were basically an inventory company. We counted the products in front and the products in the back. We added what was there last time to what was purchased, subtracted what is there now, and that equals the sales. And then we looked at their advertising to see if we could figure out what led to any increase in sales. Mm -hmm. But there was no conversation with the consumer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what that so it wasn't answering my question of mm. why do people buy things. Right. So when I went back to university, I switched into psychology and the social yeah. sciences. Okay. And the reason for that was twofold. Number one, what we were learning in consumer studies was not absolutely current. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to understand wasn't going to be answered, I didn't think, by what I was learning there. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Calgary mm-hmm. and I went to work for an advertising agency okay. running their marketing research division, mm-hmm. which was called Opinion Research Index. Okay, okay. <laughs> and being in Calgary, we had mostly agricultural and energy products. So one of mm-hmm. our one of our clients was the Alberta milk producers, another was the Calgary Stampede. And we did some work in housing and land development. And I learned a lot at the agency, a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a bit awkward when what we learned was not complementary to the work the agency had done. Right. Which put me in a very, very difficult position. I can imagine. Eventually, my boss, who was the president of the agency, president and owner, came to a disagreement And I left and started my own company doing marketing research consulting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I called it the Opinion Center. Okay, I love that name. And one of my clients was the Calgary Herald. And Mm -hmm. they would call the Opinion Center and say that they would say to me, I'm looking for an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I did their public opinion polling. Okay. which yep. meant I mm-hmm. was on the front page of the Calgary Herald. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're talking about 1980, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more than 40 years ago. And we didn't have a laptop or a desktop computer. Yeah, we did not, right. did not have Dr. Google. Mm-hmm. We actually had dial telephones. Dial Unbelievable. Telephones. And you were still able, I mean, obviously, obviously that's, that's how research it. used to be done before the internet. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. And so that was, you know, one of the pinnacles of my career was Mm -hmm. having that business. I was a a big fish in the pond of Calgary in boom times. Right. And there wasn't there wasn't the same degree of misogyny that I might have experienced in Toronto. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about that because you were a woman at the helm of your own business doing something, you know, doing pioneer work in the, in your industry. Um, and how was that received? It's, it sounds like you had no shortage of clients. It sounds like the reception for what you had to offer was very positive. Um, so you're saying you saw a difference between, you know, misogyny or sexism between Calgary and Toronto. Well, I didn't see that until later, and I can tell you that the one organization that was not keen on women in business was my bank. Hmm. And so uh, when I when I started my own company, I had no business plan. You know, we had come to a disagreement. I had said that was it. I gave him notice. He told me to leave today. It was very classic. Right. And it was right before Christmas. So I was 24, 
And I figured that I had four weeks to make it or break it and Mm. two weeks to find another job, provided I ate peanut butter sandwiches the whole time. (laughs) And uh, my first contract was about $3,000. And my second contract was about $700. Well, it's going the wrong way. (laughs) But the third contract was with GenStar Development. And it was nearly a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Mm-hmm. And I went to the bank to borrow some money because my credit cards were completely maxed at that point. Right. And the president of GenStar wanted to fly from Calgary to Toronto, first class. Mm-hmm. So I took my invoice, and I it hadn't been paid, obviously, but it was for fifty percent of the job. Right. And I went to the bank and said, I need, I needed to borrow $2,500 against a $50,000 invoice. Right. With a contract from a reputable organization, obviously. Yes. And I think my assets at that point probably consisted of the back bumper of my Robin's Egg blue Volkswagen. (laughs) Bank owned the rest. Anyway, I had to endure a lecture from the bank manager about how I had no business being in business. I didn't know anything about business. Wow. He didn't say anything about my gender, but... Mm-hmm. It was implied. It. I don't believe if I had been a male man. that I would have had a similar experience. So he did give me the $2,500. Oh, okay. And when the... <laughs> Took the, took the rest of my Volkswagen in collateral. And when I got my, my check, I went in, I paid off the loan, I closed my account, and I have never done business with that bank since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once I had that big contract, the rest was kind of history. Right. You know, I had established my credibility. The Calgary Herald was having me do their public opinion polls. Calgary was booming. And then we hit the national energy policy of 1982. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my first business was a classic, not quite three years old at the point in time when we could not continue. Because if you, you know, you, the rules that go something like this, the first three years that you were in business, you didn't have a credit history. Right. And while I had leased the equipment, it didn't, it didn't amount to my asset because it was leased. Right. And so when the downturn came, I didn't have the resources needed. By then I had six full-time people and about 60 part-time. Mm-hmm. We still did door-to-door interviews and shopping mall intercepts and things wow. like that. Wow. Mm, impressive. So with the with the downturn in Calgary and people were walking away from their homes, I closed my business and mm-hmm. I moved back to my parents' house, mm-hmm. back to the bedroom I shared with my sister when I was growing up. <laughs> uh, it was it was a very humbling experience. I bet. Very yeah. humbling. Mm-hmm. And then that propelled you to do something else. Well, in a way, mm-hmm. uh, I took a job and I worked for other marketing research consulting firms for five years. Right. Uh, most recently, I worked for Reader's Digest. Mm-hmm. I ran their consumer mail panel in, uh, division. 
Mm -hmm. And when they decided to divest themselves of that division, I was not in a position where I could purchase it. Right. So I started my own business again. Mm -hmm. And this time I did a little bit differently. This time I had a little bit of uh, financial backing. And this time I thought more carefully about what I wanted to do, where I wanted to grow to. And I was in a much bigger market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whereas in Calgary, there were probably three competitors in Toronto, there were a thousand. Right. A lot. Mm-hmm. A lot. And, you know, when the digest sold the business, they supported my new business And in fact, what happened was the clients of the business they sold didn't want to go to the new buyer. Mm -hmm. And so they handed the work in progress to me and I had an instant business. Not that I was keen on having a new business okay? because I had already lain awake worrying about how I was going to meet the payroll, Mm -hmm. how I was going to pay my own rent, where was I going to get the money for gas to put in Mm -hmm. my car. And so... I'm not sure if it hadn't evolved the way it did that I would have started the Dunvegan Group. Okay. But that's how the Dunvegan Group was born. And the first thing I did was some research to find out what did clients want that they weren't getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So back to why do people buy things. Right. And identified four pillars that have stood us in good stead throughout all of that time. Mm-hmm. And so the first of those was stand behind me and look through my eyes and see my vision. See where I'm trying to take my business and be my ally instead of my adversary. Because mm-hmm. so much of the work that's done in the marketing research world just kills new products. Right, right. Right. Mm, I could say that. And I, I was going to ask, at that time, I mean, you... It's you knew very, very early on that you were going to be, you know, you wanted to be at the helm of your own business, but were there role models around you, women in business who were a source of inspiration for you, or maybe the role models were male? Yes. So that's, that's a a question that I, I have pondered myself. Who was it? So, yes, I had male role models and I had male mentors. The one female role model was at the advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And she gave me a crash course in self-leadership in the first three months I was at the agency. And then she left, Hmm. leaving me to run the department and report to the president of the agency and try to figure out how I was going to do everything and working a hundred hours a week, which is a just really a very thin exaggeration. Hmm. But she, you know, she was full of energy. She was very deliberate. You didn't, she didn't back down and she went over under around or through whatever obstacles were thrown in her path. And while I already knew to do that, I wasn't really polished in doing it. Mm, and so with her, with her as a role model, more so than a mentor, yeah. I was able to navigate that. Mm-hmm. And who was 
kind of that network of trust and you, you've talked about having, you know, mentors and, and, you know, it, it sounds like she, she was one very briefly, um, who opened doors for you, who kind of helped you or supported you along the way. I mean, the, you know, the first company folded and then you were able to launch again. Uh, you've mentioned financial backing. So who's kind of that network of trusted supporters for you? So the financial backing was my own, as is often the case in an entrepreneurial world. I did receive a severance from Reader's Digest, which put me in a, you know, it wasn't as precarious as eating peanut butter sandwiches (laughs) for six weeks. The, The opening of doors question is also one that I've pondered. In the early days... I had work with agencies, so with advertising agencies. When I started my own company, I immediately acquired the highest competitor agency in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And they came to me, so I can't say that that was my smart decision, but that the, the man who was running it, whose name was Bob Ranson, was a very uh, caring and concerned mentor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he taught me lessons such as don't undervalue your services. Your clients will never put a higher value than you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Don't, don't walk away from business because the client doesn't agree with you. State your case, document it, do what the client wants. And if it doesn't go the way they expect, then you'll get to do it your way. Mm-hmm. But if you walk away, they'll just pay somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he made it his business to help me with my business. Right. And that was with the first business. The second business was a little bit different because I was already established in the market as having been a senior leader in a national organization. Mm-hmm. And so the same agency had an office in Toronto and I had been doing quite a lot of work with them. And when you work with an advertising agency in the research role, then you have access to multiple companies. Right. So band-aids and chewing gum and baby (laughs) diapers and soft drinks and tobacco. We did a Mm -hmm. lot of research in the tobacco market and beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and then when I started my own business, I could decide which of those was going to be uh, a good fit with where, who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be doing to make a difference in the world. Right. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. And actually, that's a good segue because I want to talk about company culture 
And you've been now leading Don Fagan Group for, I think, almost over 30 years, right? Yes, thank you for not saying almost 40. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure of the exact number. But <laughs> yes. Which yes. is still a very impressive number. Um, it's amazing to see, you know, a business with such sustainability and longevity, and you've been able to evolve because from a, you know, a technology standpoint, your industry was completely redefined in terms of the tools you're, you're able to use, obviously with internet and everything it has to offer. Um, how did you go about kind of sustaining that vision, sustaining that culture, creating that culture in the first place and, you know, kind of, Uh, having that strong leadership for, uh, you know, the company to thrive over a long period of time. And I'm sure employees come and go. I don't know if management came and went, but tell me about kind of sustaining that leadership over and that culture over 30 years in business. So first of all, when you start out as an entrepreneur, at least when I started out as an entrepreneur, I knew I wasn't going to get rich in the short term. So I wanted to have high job satisfaction for myself. I also wanted to be the best rather than the biggest. Right. And, and that was appealing to a number of people, not a huge number, but a small number of people who really came to love that idea. Now, in 1989, so we started in 87. In 1989, my husband left his research position and joined the company as my partner. Ah. And that was the biggest hit in terms of overhead. Mm -hmm. Never again did we double the overhead overnight. <laughs> you can blame your husband for that one. Yeah, well, so, and I sold him half the business because mm -hmm. we were not married when I started it. Right. And then we moved to Calgary in 1990. So up until 1990, we were a partnership of two. Mm -hmm. And we hired our first employee in Calgary. Prior to that, we had outsourced virtually everything. Mm -hmm. So keeping the overhead to, you know, as thin as it could be. But in Calgary, the, the economy was different. The business environment was different. We established our own call center because mm -hmm. by then almost everything was done by telephone. Right. And we did install our own focus group facility because we both did qualitative research as well as quantitative. Mm -hmm. And work to, I worked to reestablish the relationships I'd had in, the, in my prior business. And we grew. And... Over time, we evolved from being still working with paper and pencil mm -hmm. to computer-assisted telephone interviewing to, you know, today a cloud-based solution. Mm -hmm. We took women, largely women, who were at a point where their children were now essentially independent, so they were returning to the workforce. Many of them had keyboard skills. They knew how to type, but we called it keyboarding, of course. Mm -hmm. They had wonderful telephone manner, and they had a strong work ethic. Right. And we treated them with respect. And that was something that was of critical importance. So whereas when I worked at the agency, they all talked about keeping them down on the farm. Right, yeah. 
different approach. In my my business, I taught them all to be leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we would have multiple projects on the go, and they would rotate through the leadership or the followership position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they would have their own project that they would manage with a team, and they would be working on someone else's team at the same time. Mm -hmm. And... People stayed with me a very long time. Not only our clients, but my employees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as they mastered a task, then I allowed them to grow. So we gave them whatever they were prepared to take on. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I did, Eva, that I think was kind of a secret sauce, was I found out what they liked to do in their private time, like their hobbies. Mm-hmm. And for as an example, what our receptionist liked to do woodworking and um, she built things in her workshop at home. Mm-hmm. So when we bought IKEA furniture, we let her put it together. <laughs> and it was sort of a Tom Sawyer thing. I let her do it right. as opposed to asking her to do it. Mm-hmm. And right. she was so proud. And when you know, she brought her husband in, she brought her children in to see the furniture she had built. And that gave them a sense of ownership that I'm not sure I'd ever seen myself before. Right. Much of it I just made up as I went along. And I had that <laughs> privilege because yeah. I was the business owner, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. my private environment. Mm-hmm. We always over-delivered to our clients, so we kept them a long time, and then we had that institutional knowledge. And our employees felt like they were a real part of the organization, which they, of course, were a vital part of the success. And I showed them what happened to their work. So instead of keeping them each running on their own uh, conveyor belt, if you like, We brought them in and we presented them with the results of the studies we had done the same way that we would present it to the client so they could see where they fit into the equation. Mm -hmm. They were really part of the effort. And they were Mm cross-trained. So that encouraged them to do a really first-rate job, no matter what job they were doing, because it impacted other people. Right. And by that time, you would switch banking institutions earlier on. You've talked about the disappointing experience with the the, the first bank manager who gave you a lecture. Had you seen a shift take place where financial institutions, you know, other business people, and you talked about the difference between Calgary and Toronto, had it begun to shift? And I'm curious to know today, how far do you think we've come since... You know, you started your business in, in, I guess, the early 80s. So one of the one of the things I wish I had done was what entrepreneurs would do today. And that is seek investors. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that. I, my dad's philosophy was do it yourself. Don't let anybody else into your business, especially not the government or the bank. Right. And so we had a line of credit. We have a line of credit, but I don't rely on the bank for really for anything. Mm -hmm. Process transactions. 
nor did I take on any financial investors. Okay. And I see others doing it. Mm-hmm. I just can't comment on that from my own experience. But I do see that there are funds available mm-hmm. and there's a real interest in funding women-owned businesses. Right. Yeah. And that's a very strong trend today that mm-hmm. I didn't see as I was coming along. Right. Right. And the way we set up our cash flow, I didn't need the bank. So with our our ongoing work, which we called programs, not projects, mm-hmm. we were on retainer with a number of clients. So we had cash flow that was pretty solid. That, I think, was a winning strategy for us Yeah, and left me a, in a position of independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I would say to answer your question, yes, things are very different today, yeah. but I never let anybody get in my way again. Right. Yeah. That was the lesson you learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of lessons, what would be your advice to women entrepreneurs starting, maybe it's their own you know, consulting business or really any type of business? What's your top two or three pieces of advice for them? Mm-hmm. My number one piece of advice is to make sure that you have personal credit. So don't start a business with your credit cards maxed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My number two piece of advice is make sure you have insurance, not just life insurance, but long-term disability, critical illness, insurance that will support you in the event of some some crisis or, you know, unfortunate event. Number three is to make sure that there's a market for what you offer. Mm-hmm. And there, therein it lies something that's a bit self-serving in that I would say to you, spend some money on marketing research yeah. rather than launch a product that fails in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you consider that 80% of businesses fail in the first mm-hmm. three years, and that yeah. really hasn't changed very much. Mm-hmm. That is my, those are my top three. Make sure you have personal credit, make sure you're insured, and make sure there's a market for what you're having, what you want to offer. And the reason I put the market third is because if you identify an opportunity that isn't really feasible, along Mm -hmm. the way, you may find something that is. So then you would be able to make a course correction and do something a little bit different than maybe was your first plan, Mm -hmm. but that will succeed and carry you forward. Right, right. Well, very, very good insights. Um, What's next for you? And, you know, we've talked about the the longevity of your company. Um, What's the succession plan? Or do you see, you know, do you see the company being taken over? Do you, have you started looking at a succession plan? What does the future look like for you? And you're probably not ready to leave the business just yet. That's just my intuition. Actually, I plan to sell the business in 2010. That was my plan. Okay. So in 2008, I had the business valued. I hired an M&A firm. Remember 2008? Yes. At the beginning of the year, the economy was on fire. Yeah. And by the end of the year, we were dead stop. Yeah. So I got the results of the valuation in October, mm-hmm. about five minutes before the dead stop. 
and came to realize that the company was actually worth more in my hands than it was if I sold it. Right. Right at that moment, it would be a fire sale because, you know, the assumption was you would be in financial difficulty. Mm. Now, the reality was that we were not because we had ongoing business. And while our revenues did decline, we continued to have cash flow. And I suppose I should say that's another key to success. You, you can be in business for quite a long time without making any money as long as you have cash flow. Right. Yeah. So that was a turning point. Mm-hmm. And I decided at that point, having gone through several interviews, like part of the M&A process was to prepare you for the interview process mm-hmm. and to essentially do battle with a potential buyer. And potential buyers at that time were only interested in our contracts. Hmm. They didn't want the people. Right. And when you heard me say earlier how important the people were to the success of the business, I'm sure you can understand why I wasn't willing to essentially abandon them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have carried on without taking on a buyer or even a partner. Mm -hmm. And I have expanded my own activities because I'm not needed day to day in any in anything really uh, to public speaking. Mm-hmm. I do CEO coaching. Mm-hmm. I've written several books and I'm working on one right now, which doesn't have a title, but is a collection of life lessons. Oh, I love and, that. Yes, it doesn't have a title just yet, but it will. And it will be available before November. So those are the things that I am now working on. Mm-hmm. I've been approached to teach at uh, Conestoga College, which is a degree-granting institution mm-hmm. that has a school of entrepreneurial business. And so I'm hoping that in the, in September mm-hmm. that I will take on a couple of classes. And that way I can continue to pass on the experience that I've gained Mm-hmm. One of my core beliefs, Eva, is that experience is all fine and good when it serves one person. Mm-hmm. But when you share it, it has exponential value. Right. And so that has been something I've worked on throughout my career is to ensure that other people have the opportunity to avoid stepping in the potholes that I stepped in. Mm-hmm. And are you speaking of, you know, passing on knowledge and experience um, is supporting other women, other female founders important to you? And I know you've been involved with the International Women's Forum as well for a number of years. So how does kind of supporting, you know, the next generation of women entrepreneurs look like for you or women leaders in general? It doesn't have to be just entrepreneurs. Yes, I was going to say it's women leaders in general. I have a particular soft spot for entrepreneurs. And, you know, when you make your own business, you make your own rules, you make your own success. When you're in the corporate environment, it's different. Yeah. And in the corporate environment, women have had to prove themselves to be more than equal to men. Mm. And even in my brief employment periods, I knew that I had to work twice as hard, really twice as hard. And I wouldn't say it was for half as much because when I found out I was being paid less, I made an issue of that at AC Nielsen. 
and my pay was adjusted retroactive to day mm-hmm. one to be the equivalent to what my male counterparts were being paid. Bravo. Uh, my, you know, support of entrepreneurs, my door, my phone, my, my home is always open. And while I don't have all the answers, I have some. Mm-hmm. But certainly I know some things that didn't work. But within the corporate environment, we are now reaching a stage where women are leading other women. Mm-hmm. And something that's been very distressing to me is to learn about the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, yes. And to learn that it's women doing it to other women. Mm-hmm. And to really encourage those that are coming along to be tall poppies. You know, wear a neck brace if you have to, but my goodness, don't <laughs> let anybody knock you down. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do that. And I mm. wonder if we realize that we do that. Mm. No, I was at an event once where a woman stood up and said she wouldn't sponsor another woman into a new position because she might excel past her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, we need to, as leaders, we need to create more leaders, leaders who are better than we are. Mm-hmm. leaders mm-hmm. who can carry forward an even bigger population yeah. than we've been able to carry forward. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a peer group when I started my first business or even my second business. I was going to say that. Yeah. There weren't women owned businesses that you could talk to. Mm-hmm. It was a lone, it was a lonely place to be. Yeah. And, you know, I did experience a client actually say to me, don't you have any men you could send to see me? Wow. <laughs> and you've mentioned, you know, a number of challenges along the way you've had to close a business. How do you deal with obstacles, with, you know, setbacks that are put in your way? Um, how do you deal with adversity in business? Well, as you say, I have had the opportunity to experience a number of setbacks. And I believe that in every one of those setbacks, there was opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I have a, an acronym, if you like. I have seven C's for dealing with a calamity. And the first C is to collect. So stop and write down all of your thoughts, your ideas, your anxieties, your worries. Just write do a, a brain dump of all of the things that are worrying for you. And then the second C is compartmentalize them. So organize them into, so till you identify what's really critical and it's important and critical to do, urgent. Because many of those things that you worry about are not worth worrying about. Right, yeah. They won't actually happen. The third C is to collaborate. So Think about who could help you, help you with the decisions that you might need to make, help you just bring yourself into a place of calm, refer you to someone else who could help. So that's collaborate. At this point, you're ready to compose a plan. So begin at the beginning. What will you do that's urgent and important? Who will you involve? What steps will you take? Next, you need to communicate that to all the people that will be impacted. So whether that's your internal personnel, whether that's clients or suppliers, whether it's your family, you need to communicate and communicate and communicate. 
communication being the biggest challenge we face in life. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. C number six is conquer. So now you're ready to go forward and conquer the setback to take, take those actions in collaboration and continue to communicate and see yourself to the other side of that obstacle. And the final C, C number seven is celebrate. Mm, So don't forget to celebrate the successes as we so often find ourselves pulling everybody together when it's a crisis. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that we did that I know the people who work for me appreciated was we kept a success log and we started every one of our business meetings with tell us about the successes, you know, small, medium and large that we have achieved in the past week, month, never more than a month, before we addressed any of the issues, Mm. so that we were reminding one another that we are always making progress. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back, but at least we're still one step to the good. Exactly, one step ahead. So those are the seven C's of dealing with a calamity. I think that last one is very important. That's something that comes up in conversations on here a lot. I think women entrepreneurs often, you know, we feel the pressure to always do more, always prove ourselves. And we don't stop and celebrate what what we've achieved and even, you know, the small steps to success along the way. Um, So I think that's great advice. All right. And in closing, how do you, and you've had, you know, an amazingly wonderful career, you still do. Um, you know, the, the, the success of your current business shows, um, how dedicated you've been to really building, you know, a successful company from the ground up and years of, of hard work. How do you define success for yourself and how do you define it for your business and how do you define it on a personal level? Well, I didn't finish answering you what I was going to do with the business. The mm-hmm. business will not not continue after me. Okay. Because I am the the brand. And having gone through the experience of endeavoring to, uh, you know, prepare to sell it, I won't do that. Mm. So the business will end when I stop working. Right. That will probably be when I no longer can because I love it. Yeah, I can and, see that. um <laughs> uh, Uh, My driving force is to see others succeed, to uh, see others rise to their highest and best in whatever they choose to do. Mm. And it's true that sometimes I see a higher and better than they see for themselves. Uh, I am now in a place where I have the privilege and continue to be privileged to be able to spend time with my family, with the mm-hmm. up-and-coming generations, mm-hmm. with those that need extra time to volunteer. Yes, the, the International Women's Forum and Advancing Women's Leadership is key and critical to my, my definition of success. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I think I've come to a place of humility Mm-hmm. that I understand we all came here for a purpose and I will continue to work towards my purpose of seeing others reach their highest and best, whether that's an individual or a company, mm-hmm. a for-profit or a not-for-profit membership organization. 
these are the places where I can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I love that I'm able to do that. And I, I think you have a large number of clients, of partners, of mentees now who are grateful for what you're able to provide. Well, thank you, Anne. It's been wonderful hearing about your journey and getting you to share all your insights and wisdom. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to see what you know the next few years bring. Uh, and thank you so much for your time today. It's been my absolute pleasure, Eva, and I wish you every possible success as well. Thank you so much. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Music.